From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Coons. Hi, everyone. It's Connie Coons, and you're listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's March. It's season one, but it's episode 13. Oh, scary. <gasps> so scary. Oh, but who's that? Who who's is stand- that? Who's standing right next to us in the Shumway studio? It's none other than Dan Libman. That's Hi. right. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. How are you, Connie? I'm fantastic. I Good. love this story, but I don't actually know the title. I, it doesn't have a title. Doesn't I never. It? I never. Well, I think I was calling it the Cuba essay for a long time, and um, it, it because it hasn't been published. I nobody's. I haven't bothered to title it. Okay. No problem. How's the Cuba essay? The it's Cuba bad. essay is. Let's talk about it later. Oh. Oh no! I did have a title. Yes. Oh, it did have a title. Uh, I was calling it Trading Alien for a while. Trading Alien. Oh, okay. that's good. It's beautiful. Yeah. So tell us about, I want you to place us before we go into this story. Tell us about Elian Gonzalez and the okay. year. Okay. The year was 19, I think 99? Yes. Okay. And uh, uh, a, a young a young Elian Gonzalez with his mother, uh, they got on a raft and the, the deal was that if you could make it, if you could get onto dry land, yet you were able to stay in Florida. And I think she set out in a large group of people. Uh, with a large group of people and their their flotilla or whatever got capsized and they were all lost at sea except for Elian who I believe was seven does that sound about right six or seven years old he made it to land and then it became this huge international incident because uh, Cuba wanted him back his father was still in Cuba his mother was dead and and he was uh, sent to live with relatives he actually had relatives who were living in Miami at the time and that's where he was and that's where the situation was when a plucky group of young Rockfordians went to Cuba on a just <laughs> on a vacation just okay. to see what it was like. All right, thank you for placing us. With no further ado, let's listen to Trading Alien. All right. The lobby of Havana's Hotel Riviera is majestically tacky with vinyl couches in crayon red, art deco statuary, and 1950s lamps with oval bases and heavy copper tops. Polka dots of lights are projected roller rink style on the low ceilings. In fact, the whole ring-a-ding-ding atmosphere of this hotel, which was constructed in 1957 by mobster Meyer Lansky, remains so preserved that you wouldn't blink an eye if an elevator door opened and Sammy and Frank stepped out. The famed Copa Room, opened by Ginger Rogers, has recently been restored to its former ersatz splendor. A few things have changed here. Across the lobby from the Copa Room, a banquet hall-sized space which once housed the casino is now home to Cuba's largest broom closet. But if anything is purposely updated here at the Riviera, it's the Wall of Fame which stands in the lobby center next to the reception desk. Here you can find photos of Ginger and Meyer and other Eisenhower-era dignitaries, but also more recent guests, Leonardo DiCaprio and Danny Glover. And on top of them all, the most recent addition, Elian Gonzalez. Finding Elian's photo here is certainly ironic, but not in the way it might first seem. After all, Elian seems to be replacing Che Guevara as the most ubiquitous face on the island. His pensive face adorns posters and billboards and t-shirts, accompanied by phrases like, Return our child and save our Elian. The irony is, rather, that had Elian remained in Cuba, he would not have been allowed to step foot in the Riviera. 
By official government edict, only Cubans directly associated with the tourist industry can enter a hotel. And few Cubans get jobs in the service industry, though the jobs are much in demand. The average Cuban makes anywhere from 15 to 30 pesos a month. Since there are currently 21 pesos and a dollar, a tip on even a small transaction is a pretty valuable commodity. You can see why it's become officially illegal for doctors to quit their job to become waiters. Because Americans are officially not allowed in Cuba, actually we can be there, just not spend any money, creative ways of getting to the island must be invented. Since schools have the easiest time getting licenses, I have signed on with a Midwestern community college, along with 28 other students at large who've enrolled just for this trip. We're an odd group, united, I suppose, by a desire to go somewhere we're not supposed to go. We're going to meet with economists and official government representatives. We're going to visit schools and cigar factories. We're going to take rumba lessons. Our group soon discovers this. Even though Save Alien t-shirts are everywhere in Cuba, on school children and street vendors and workers alike, they aren't available to tourists. They have been provided for Cubans and Cubans only. T-shirt stores may be filled with images of Gorilla Che Guevara or national writer Jose Marti, but there is not a single image of Alien for sale. I ask a few shop owners and am met with a shake of the head. I approach a group of young men on the street to ask where I might find one and get only wagging fingers and answer, no, no. One man taps his index finger just under his eye, beware. Others in my group are having similar experiences, it turns out. And as soon as word gets out that alien shirts are forbidden, everyone in the group wants one. An informal pact is set. We want alien shirts, and we set out to get them. Because of America's strange relationship with Cuba, American tourists are still fairly rare, at least rare enough that the ugly American prototype doesn't seem to be part of Cuban consciousness. While walking on the Malacan, the famous seawall that stretches about four miles on the northern rim of Havana from around the Riviera to the old Havana neighborhood, you can find many Cubans who are eager to get to know you. Usually, after a few minutes of small talk, it turns out there's something to be sold. I have a brother who works in a cigar factory. Naturally, the Malacan is the first place our group members attempt to acquire alien shirts. Yes, say the first people we speak. Wait here, hasta pronto. We wait, but no one ever returns with shirts, pronto or no. Finally, we retreat from the Malacan to the streets of Havana, where we feel more conspicuous. Uniformed men with guns and batons and black revolutionary berets patrol nearly every street corner here. Their job is to protect tourists, but all they do is inhibit conversation. One of our group returns with a frightening tale of having her alien shirt connection hauled off while still clutching a few used camasitas, and herself sternly warned not to buy anything off the black market. In truth, it is the unique three-currency system of Cuba that makes black marketeering so rampant. Cubans use pesos, but since the 90s, when Cubans were allowed to be in possession of dollars, our greenbacks have been the most desired currency. Tourists are not allowed to use pesos, and instead, we spend dollars. Cubans can give us change in dollars if they can, or they can make change with the third currency known as the convertible peso. These freshly minted, brightly colored bills can be used as one peso or one dollar, depending on what is being bought and who is doing the buying. 
One day, I stood in the wrong line for ice cream and was told when I reached the stand that the vendor had none left. As soon as I stepped out of line, this vendor remounted his sign and continued to sell to Cubans using pesos. Ice cream is the safe stuff, I realize, and it's the black marketeers who are most bold about wanting dollars. While waiting to leave for a day trip to the countryside, I spy a shirt vendor on the street and tell him my group will buy as many alien t-shirts as he can sell. No sooner has he agreed than the police show up, and at this, the vendor turns quickly away from me. The experience frightens me, though the vendor rolls his eyes as he produces his official identity papers. My Midwestern tour group is undaunted. We have money. We assure each other the shirts will follow. Sure enough, the first t-shirt is procured by Doug, a reporter for a local paper. I bump into him on the street shortly after he's made the deal. He has his arms folded, and as I approach, he stretches them in a faux embrace. There, on his chest, is little Elian, complete with furrowed brow and pouted lip. Underneath his face, the slogan, Devuelven Nuestro Niño. Doug explains, he saw someone wearing the shirt and offered him $5 on the spot. The two went into the lobby of a building, swapped shirts, Doug gave the guy $5, and the deal was done. The shirt is much too small for Doug, who is also blonde and fair-skinned, and as we walk down the street, someone points at him, wagging a finger. Now Doug's nervous, so he buys a Che shirt from a vendor and slips Che over Elian, Mehor. That same day, another member of our group, a lawyer named Dave, spies a young boy with an Elian shirt while en route, via tour bus, to an exhibit in the city. Dave directs the tour bus to stop and signals the boy to get on. How much for your shirt, he asks. The boy tentatively asks one dollar, but the tour guide translates this as five. The boy is paid the five dollars, and the shirt is traded. Our group has now set the price for alien shirts, and we have our first two. My room in the Riviera is on the 20th floor, which formerly contained Meyer Lansky's palatial private suite. Now it's known as the executive floor and is assigned to those doing business in Havana. How I, an adjunct English teacher, have managed to be assigned a room on this floor is one of Havana's many mysteries. The rooms here are like all the others in the hotel. That is, nothing special, run down, with beds low to the floor and dim energy-saving bulbs. But the executive floor does have a perk, its own restaurant. There are in total eight restaurants in the Riviera, one in the basement, one by the pool, four in the lobby, one on the 20th floor, plus one that I can never seem to locate. Although the restaurants vary in degree of formality and price, they have one thing in common. They are all completely devoid of customers at all hours of the day. The basement cafeteria is an exception, since most room fees include the buffet-style breakfast served there. I'm becoming quite familiar with the staff of the 20th floor restaurant, a plump, spangled cocktail waitress, two men in tuxedos, one I think a maitre d' and the other a waiter, a chef in whites and requisite hat, and three musicians in what appear to be mariachi attire. The whole staff remains sitting in their outfits, like a troop of actors whose curtain call never comes. 
They spend the day watching cable TV, available in the hotel but not their homes, and wave to me as I walk to my room or take the elevator down to the basement for the free buffet. The executive floor has its own boss, a short, stocky Cuban woman with large eyes and a permanent grin. She is friendly and gregarious and apologizes for not speaking English. She explains that she was raised in Soviet-era Cuba, so her Russian is fluent. Because I'm staying on this floor, she seems to think I'm important, which is embarrassing. Her office is just across from the elevators, and she has an uncanny ability of knowing whenever I am leaving my room. She comes out and greets me warmly, hugs me, kisses me on the cheek. She has let me know a number of times that the executive floor is ready to handle a business meeting. It has a computer and a copy machine and fax machine. The fax machine seems of particular pride to her, and finally, after a few days of describing it to me, she ushers me into her executive office, where indeed all the equipment she's been bragging about is located. A PC with a freshly exploded Minesweeper game, an old copy machine, the kind with the glass plate that physically slides your original instead of the other way around, and a brand new fax machine. She tells me again that people like me can now have a meeting here on the top floor in the restaurant or in one of the suites, whatever we'd like. I will try to get the word out, I promise meekly. I haven't the heart to tell her that as an adjunct English teacher, I know very few businessmen who are considering holding a meeting in Cuba, but holding back for fear of a dearth of fax machines. She invites me to dinner at the 20th floor restaurant then, but I decline. I tell her I have to get up early. We'll be touring schools the next morning. In reality, it's too humiliating to think that if I say yes, I will force the whole staff to stand up and turn off the television. I wasn't lying about the school visit, though. Every day, our group is scheduled to visit somewhere. A school, a hospital, a factory. One day, an economist with his special badge of permission enters the Riviera and lectures us. Cubans aren't afraid of hardball questions, we discover. If your country is a democracy, asks the economist, why is it that so many Americans agree that Elian should come home to his father, but your government has not returned him? With this, we all fall into our usual pattern of talking over each other to quickly assure the questioner that we aren't that kind of American, and we, like them, want to see Elian returned as quickly as possible. The economist rubs his chin when he listens and begins each sentence by holding a finger aloft as though beginning a recitation. He wants to know how it is that a group of ex-Cubans in Miami can profoundly influence elections as far away as Indiana and South Carolina. Someone in our group shoots back that in a democracy, everyone has a right to voice an opinion. The economist smiles then, because we have not understood the nuances of his question. He means for us to infer that our democracy is a sham. His island had a revolution which ousted the people with all the money and power. Now these very same people are calling the shots in our country. He pauses pointedly, then asks his final question. What do we think would happen if Elian were Haitian? or Mexican, or even a darker-skinned Cuban. We're quiet, then. We assume, or hope, that the question is rhetorical. The next day, we are bussed out to the provinces, to a grammar school where a classroom of children file out and sing Guantanamera a cappella. In Havana, Chan Chan, popularized by the Buena Vista Social Club, has replaced Beso Mi Mucho and Guantanamera as the most requested songs by tourists. 
Cubans in Havana, by the way, seem mystified by this. They know the musicians on Ry Cooter's project and seem to think them kind of square. In any case, it seems that here, outside of the cities, the old chestnuts still hold sway. Where American children are taught not to touch each other and stand at a stiff distance during recitals, Cuban students are a tangle of arms and hands. They appear to be wrapped around one another, a massive taffy tangle of colors and shades, from white to coffee to deep black. Our group asked the students and teachers dull questions about numbers of students and hours in the day, and in Soviet style, they respond with exact numbers, down to the students who only attend half days and the amount of hours and minutes each student spends studying each subject. These schools are ripe with the image of Che Guevara. Not just photographs, mind you. Every lobby in Cuba has the famous one of Che and Fidel victoriously smoking cigars. But paintings, and even in one, a series of comic book-style drawings, Che piloting a plane, Che rescuing a little dog, Che leaping from an explosion, Che in crown of thorns, his blood pooling into his eyes. Now Che is joined by the image of the little lost Cuban. The liberate alien variety hangs from every wall and bulletin board. I notice for the first time that the chain link fence that Elian peers through gives him the same long-suffering look of a puppy dog in a pound a day away from the needle. Like Che, Elian seems world-weary and implacable. Elian t-shirts seem to be an acceptable variation of the school uniform. We can see him peeking out from underneath red piping and blue bandanas. Some in the group are itching to make an offer. In the end, though, we observe the sanctity of the classroom. No offers are made. But success is just around the corner, where we visit an athletic school in Pinar del Rio. These kids are working hard to be in the next Olympic javelin competition. They assure us they have been practicing, though as of yet, they own no javelins. Despite their economic disabilities, the students of the school warmly offer us orange slices, pre-peeled and segmented. It's the best they can afford, they assure us brightly. But by now, I'm feeling something I can only describe as gratitude fatigue, and I don't make any attempt to talk to the students. This turns out to be a mistake, because several of our more gregarious members are rewarded with freshly washed alien shirts. I vow to be more proactive next stop. Between the athletic school and some covert street purchases, our group is beginning to be flush with aliens, although I myself still don't own one. There is a feeling of camaraderie, though, and everyone seems to want to help me acquire a shirt. We are now staying in the countryside, in a retreat normally used to accommodate members of the Communist Youth Party, though now there is only our group and a drunken softball team from Long Island, who seem to find our Midwestern reserve more alien than Cuban culture. We discover that a group of Cubans is celebrating a family reunion on the site. Several of them have alien shirts. I train my eye on a guy about my height and build. I think it's too crass to walk into a family reunion and start trying to buy shirts off people's backs, but I keep him under sharp surveillance, waiting for him to leave the group and walk to the bar or to the bathroom. The New Yorkers, of course, aren't so shy, and I watch in envy as one of them follows the guy, openly exchanging cash for shirt. Those in my group comfort me and give me pep talks. If I'm going to get one, I need to be more aggressive. And so when I see another shirt, this time on a worker at the party, I rush right up, waving my $5 bill and yelling, trade, trade, trade. I'm no longer worried about propriety, decorum, grammar. I want an alien shirt. I want one. And I buy one, amid applause from members of my group. As the worker and I head to the bathroom to exchange shirt for dollars, I think to myself that this has an unpleasant whiff of rough trade, but at least I have my shirt. Everyone in my group is happy for me. 
I'm a late member, but a member of the Elian Club nonetheless. That same evening, some of the people our group has met in the provinces begin showing up for a going-away party we are throwing in honor of ourselves. A woman I've talked with shows up and brings me another alien shirt. Word gets around that I now have two shirts, and suddenly, the good feelings come to a halt. The next morning, everything evens out, because at breakfast we're provided the opportunity to buy as many aliens as we want. The word has gotten out. All the waitresses are wearing their vests unbuttoned. Underneath them, peeks somber little alien. As they serve coffee and toast, they nod and wink at us conspiratorially. In fact, there are so many of the shirts available that we seem to have lost our taste for them. No trading is brokered. And finally, I hear a waitress timidly tell one of our group members that she would be happy just to trade an American t-shirt for a Cuban one. No money necessary. On my last day in Cuba, I skip the tour bus, and I sit alone on the Malacan, smoking cohibas and watching the waves crash into the seawall. The Riviera stands behind me, a monument to a past Cuba managed to dodge. And Meyer Lansky is on my mind. I think of how smug he must have felt to have built this splendidly tacky hotel in such a sublime location, and how gangster angry he must have been when the revolutionaries showed up and took it away. But Elian Gonzalez is also on my mind. And so, too, for some reason, is poor Pip, cast overboard the Pequod. Poor Pip, whose ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. I wonder how this expansion felt to Elian, how it felt when the Coast Guard plucked him from the raft, how it felt for this little boy to see his mother disappear under the waves and not come up. I wonder if Elian yet knows the bargain that's been proffered for him by our countries and by his relatives. Can anyone really believe that lifestyle is an adequate replacement for a mother or for a community where you can hold hands with your schoolmates? Someone in our group pointed out earlier that Elian might be more valuable to Fidel in America than Cuba. And Elian would be better off, said another. He should stay in the States, go to Harvard or Georgetown, and when Fidel dies, return to Cuba and appoint himself king. He could bring with him his love of Disney, his addiction to McDonald's and Coke. But I wonder now, how much of Havana will survive this unique moment of suspension? I think of the words of The Economist in his speech of a few days earlier. We know what to do if we're bombed, and we know what to do if there's a flood or a hurricane. But not one of us has any idea what's going to happen when the money comes. Maybe by then, Elian will have some answers for them. Thank you so much for sharing this story with us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And that's my pleasure. Uh-huh. This story to me is about so many things. Yeah. It's about motherless children. It's about emigration. Oh, I should not. I'm nodding. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, emigration. Mm-hmm. It's about racism. Yes. It's about nods to other literary pieces like Moby Dick. Yes. It's about young students, young people traveling. Right. Uh, it's about racism. Mm-hmm. It's about little children singing. There was a lot of little children singing, yes. And it's about mobsters hiding. Yeah. So I know what this story means to me. Okay. But what does it mean to the author? Well, you know, to me, the, the story is mostly about uh, economics. That's I think that that was why um, I had originally, I hit on that title, Trading Alien. Because what, what was interesting was sort of the way that the 
t-shirt. We were these Americans and we were used to just being able to buy whatever we wanted and we couldn't buy it. We were not allowed to buy them. So of course that made them more valuable. And, um, and then by the time we, there, were, there was a, a large group of people who were willing to sell them by the end of the trip, we didn't want them anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and I, that was sort of uh, kind of, I was hoping in a little micro, a uh, little sort of microcosm, what maybe a suggestion about what was gonna happen to Cuba once the uh, the embargo was lifted, once the money started rolling in. Because there was a lot of, this economist had talked to us, and so there was a lot of thinking about economic fairness and political stuff. About this economist, mm -hmm. was he really a smiler? I don't remember. No, okay. <laughs> I'm going to assume so. It was such a funny detail. Yeah. And I just wasn't sure if he was patronizing. No, you know, yeah, it was like that. It was kind of like, you know, it, to him, I remember I remember it was like sort of like an intellectual game of chess. Like he had these questions lined out and he had his opinions and they weren't our opinions. But by the time we were done listening to him, he had made some interesting points about democracy. And really he had... What he was talking about was just having money. That, in his opinion, there, there were these Cubans who were wealthy in Florida who were just uh, influencing um, elections in Indiana. I remember, I can't remember, I think the, the guy's name was Burton, the senator at the time. And he had taken a lot of money from, from these Cuban Americans. And they thought that that was outrageous. They thought it was fine that the Cuban Americans could, who lived in Florida, were influencing the Florida elections. But they thought it was ridiculous that they were influencing elections in Utah and, and Indiana and that sort of thing. And at the time, I just thought, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But over the years, I, I've come to think that he's right, as, as sort of more and more money has become flush in our system, and that it really has become a major problem. Mm -hmm. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Okay. What's more interesting to you, a media darling or the politics around it? Media darling? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by media darling? Well, he's darling? so cute. Elian's cute. He oh. eats McDonald's. He drinks Cokes. He's lovely to look at yeah. we feel sorry for this boy is that what's interesting to you or is it the politics that surround the situation the political I, I, aura yeah i think it i think at the i think it has changed for me at the time i had a young boy who's not quite as old as elian but my, i think my son was about three at the time and so i was oh i was seeing the entire situation through that lens oh there was this poor father in cuba and he had lost his son and how could we not send Elian back to his father. What father would should be separated from his son like that? In fact, when I went to Cuba, I, I, I really pined for my son. I was not used to being away from my family at that point. And, and so, so that's really how I saw it. Um, and I was interested in the politics of it, mm -hmm. uh, probably a great deal more. Like I didn't, I was, you, you mentioned that he went to McDonald's and stuff like that. I don't really remember that. Is that, that was on the news? Mm -hmm. and he did, yeah. I, I remember seeing his cousin that he lived with and he would be waving to the spectators and stuff like that through the fence. But I was definitely much more interested in the politics. Mm -hmm. And um, although I guess that contradicts what I said about <laughs> seeing it through a father. So I, I mean, I think maybe both ways. I see that. In yeah. You. I definitely see that. I didn't realize your son was young and born already. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was two okay. at the time, actually. So he was born in 98. That changes the way I see how you wrote this story. Right. In, in in the year, at the time, it just seemed unthinkable that anybody would say Elian should not be returned home to his father. Mm -hmm. now, 20 years later, I'm not 100. I think that it's worth talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the, you know, it, it, people were saying then while his mother wanted him to come to America and she basically sacrificed her life to get him here. And he did make it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, you know, it was a little unorthodox the way he got here, but he did get here. And mm -hmm. once you once you touch dry land, you're supposed to be allowed to stay. 
at the time, I couldn't hear that argument at all. But I think 20 years later, maybe there was something to that. Maybe mm -hmm. he would have been better off to stay here. I don't know. Okay. You were so passionate about getting that T-shirt. Yeah. You all were. What's your T-shirt culture like now? Do you like? I yeah, I have almost every T-shirt I own. I, in the summer, I only wear T-shirts. And every T-shirt I own has either the name of a beer on it or a, a bicycle ride mm -hmm. that, I, I was, that I went on and have been given a T-shirt for. Okay. Uh, in fact, to the point where my children mock me openly about it but uh what happens is i get a i drink an uh, alcoholic beverage and yes. then i really am having a nice time <laughs> and then i want to spend money and i want to so that i look for the t-shirt and i had to actually set up a series of i'm really glad you asked about t-shirts uh, i had to set up a set of rules for myself which is that i would only buy the t-shirt if i liked the beer mm -hmm. and i liked the t-shirt and that really cut down on the amount of t-shirts because i i a lot of a lot of breweries don't have nice looking t-shirts so what's your favorite beer what's your favorite t-shirt right now uh i, I have uh, well it changes all the time but right i my, my i think my favorite t-shirt beer combination is the three floyds i have a three floyds mm -hmm. uh it's actually not even a t-shirt it's like what like a half shirt maybe okay. it's it's not a long sleeve a raglan is that what they're called? I think so. Like baseball type? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, it's like that. And it's got like it's got a bottle cap on it. It says Three Floyds. And Three Floyds beer is, uh, you know, outstanding as you well. You know, the last story you shared, the main character name was Floyd. Was there any? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was the reason. Yeah. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, back to this story. Okay. Uh, there's a reference to Pip. Yeah. In Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. um, he's a, another adorable, lovely character yeah who meets a terrible end you know i just wanted to promote melville a little bit give him a little shout out you know i was worried that his reputation was was faltering and that i could help him with this essay i know that's somewhat of a joke but there, tell, me, tell joke. me a little bit more about what moby dick means to you and why you brought that character i in. think i had just recently reread moby dick and i really love moby dick mm -hmm. partially because so much of it is so uh, off the subject i mean you could you and people have published moby dick where it's just the plot mm -hmm. and you could do it in about 60 pages and then there's just chapters and chapters of just descriptions of what it's like to cut open a sperm whale and mm -hmm. and how you you know set the riggings and the mass and stuff like that and it's i i love when i'm reading a book um I love the sense that the language is that the words being used are the right words and these are the nautical words. Anyway, I had just read Moby Dick and um, that line about I was really struck by um, I have separation anxiety and that moment when Pip falls overboard and the ring of, of, of the world. I don't remember how it is anymore, but it just kind of separates. Mm -hmm. It goes it just it expands miserably. I think it's something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I just was able I just put that together just Pip and Elion having that same experience but I'm sure it was worse for Elion mm -hmm. for being younger and also for being a real person okay than Pip going back to politics how did you feel about the whole Bush Gore thing that whole debacle I mean mm. we've got a little Florida in this story <laughs> yeah we've yeah got that election Florida was pretty pivotal in it that was and and Gore I remember uh came out and said that he was in favor of Elion being sent, Elian uh, uh, remaining here in America. <clears throat> and that was a surprise coming from him because the Democrats were pretty staunchly in favor of him being returned to the father. And it was seen at the time that he was selling out. And I think partially, I think it actually probably was sort of a calculated decision on his part that he couldn't go against the Cuban community. Um, 
like I said before, at the time, I, now maybe there might be some, it's worth discussing mm-hmm. whether that was right. I still think it's right to send him back to his father, but at, I, I do think that there's room for discussion in it, which I didn't feel then. Uh, but of course, and then Florida, of course, was pivotal in that mm-hmm. that whole, that, that was a rough, a rough time. Mm-hmm. That Especially that, I remember election night mm-hmm. when, when it just never ended. And Did you the, go to bed thinking one thing and then waking up and learning another thing? I remember that. As, um, as I did. <laughs> My wife Molly, who's been published, uh, she was in the uh, she was in the living room on, we she was sick and so we had set up this futon and she was just on this futon. We were listening to the results. I don't think we had a television at the time. We do now. We're not those people anymore. But at the, <laughs> we did not have a television then, and we were listening on the radio. And at some point, I just said, "I'm going to bed. Can you wake me up when this was over?" And well, she didn't wake me up. I mean, I think it went on for like two weeks before it was oh, yeah. uh, finally settled. So, uh, but yeah, I gave up on it. But she hung in there all night long and, and listened okay. the whole time. Very interesting. How does politics? Uh, last week you mentioned that you have four or five projects going at any time. Yeah. I think that's amazing. I can only write one thing at a time, right. and I can only read one book at a time. Yeah. So, two questions. One, can you read more than one book at the same time? Uh, I think I do. I think I do, but it's mostly do- owing to disorganization. Okay. I don't really do that very often, but well, but I, I could be reading a nonfiction and a fiction book at the same time. See, I think you can't because your stories have so much going on them at yeah. one time. I wondered if, you know, and you write more than one story at a time. Well, course- that's also maybe owing to sort of a sloppiness in terms of the my approach and a disorganization issue. It would be better maybe if I could focus on it, but it just... Okay, but your writing isn't sloppy or disorganized. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I, so I just yeah. wondered if that was part of your process. I know you want to be humble here, mm-hmm. but is this you know this That's is a teaching podcast? Yeah. Um, we are. Do you recommend that? Working on more than one thing at once. Yes. I, I I recommend working, and if you can't get going on the thing that you want to be going on, go on something else. Mm-hmm. Don't don't. Sometimes it's it's easy to say, well, this isn't happening today, so I'm just gonna give up on today. And and you should do that on occasion, but you should it, you'd be better off if you said, well, this isn't happening today, so I'm gonna go on to this other project. And we did talk last week about revision. Mm-hmm. I don't want to repeat myself, and that's but that is the reason why those stories are maybe they appear a little bit more organized or a little bit more tight is because I just constantly go back over and over and over again and mm-hmm. pull the superfluous words i really hope our listeners heard that advice not to whittle it down to word zero mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but to take the advice to cut yeah. and to, you know start with a word start with a sentence start with right. a page. i thought that was beautiful wisdom mm-hmm. and so i'm looking for this week's pearl from dan libman okay let's hear the it pearl a pearl a pearl oh well you know uh you should uh <laughs> i don't know right 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 uh Write what you know, know what you write. Now, I, I hate that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll tell you something that I, I do say to some students of mine, which and that, um, that always shocks them. And I try not to say this in the beginning, but you know, I think plot is the least interesting thing in the, in a story. And if you're if you're if your story is hanging on plot turns and plot devices and and genre stuff, I, I love genre fiction. I read a lot of noir crime stuff like that, but none none of the stories. Nowadays we worry about spoilers. Mm-hmm. None of these things would be can be ruined by a spoiler. I had somebody very recently say to me, uh, I, I, we were talking about um, Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Oh, I can't see Citizen Kane because I know that Rosebud's the sled." Mm-hmm. I was just like, "You haven't seen it because obviously you don't know that that it does not matter mm-hmm. that you know that Rosebud is the." I mean, to think that the whole movie revolves around knowing that one little secret is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that your story. 
uh, that you write, plot should be the least important thing. Things obviously have to happen in a story to keep a reader's attention, and you know, because things happen in life. Mm -hmm. But it it should not be the the paramount the, the the first thing that you're working on. Okay. So, what is your goal this week? Is it still the novel? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I you know I if I can keep if I can keep myself sitting in the chair for the amount of time that I want to write, I'm on spring break this week. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it gets a little sloppy. I, I start a little bit later, but, um, but yeah, I think sort of keeping the page count is the, is the goal. Mm -hmm. And the novel is sort of, it's basically written, trying to sell it is, is the goal, but selling, selling your work is not writing and mm -hmm. it, it can sometimes feel like it's writing and it definitely takes up some of your writing time, but it's mm -hmm. not writing. And if you spend all your writing time writing cover letters, you're not being very good to yourself. I hear you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, that keeping, just keeping, keep journal writing and um, make, try to find some anecdote every day to mm -hmm. write down and there's got to be one. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the listeners this week about your writing process, what you're going through, what you're doing on your spring break? I wish I was had an interesting spring, you know, because my kids don't have the same spring break as I, so we, we're, we're stuck, uh, we're stuck at home. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Not I uh, just have fun. Just have fun. Just have fun, you young people. Okay. Now, one more thing. Okay. Uh, is there anything in the media right now? Is there a media darling right now that you would? maybe be inspired to write about hmm you, you mean like Elian was at the mm -hmm. at the time uh uh who is in the media now you know i'm i'm aging sort of out of being interested in in all the the young people stuff mm -hmm. um no i can't think of any like sort of political thing that that i would be too interested in writing about mm -hmm. at the moment and i think that i wouldn't have ever written about Elian if i didn't if i hadn't already bought the plane tickets yeah. you know and sort of got stuck with it um, so I sort of, I guess if you can call it an approach that I always just sort of whatever falls into your lap, whatever's around you. Mm -hmm. I've been reading about, uh, Pyrus, is that how you pronounce his name? Pyrrhus? I don't Who? I don't even know. <laughs> the, the colonel, the, or he's a, he's a commander. The, the, he, we get the word Pyrrhic victory from him. He was, he was this great general and, and, um, he, 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 he he won all of his battles, but he, he took such heavy costs that he 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 said some. He observed that if he did any more winning, you know, he'd have to. Ah, uh, oh, shoot, I can't remember the exact line. But it, basically, we get pyrrhic victory from him. In other words, that the I, you win, but the, the cost of winning is so great that you might as well have lost. Mm -hmm. I'd like to write about him. Okay, pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Maybe this is a new topic we'll read about or listen to from Dan Libman. Yeah. Uh, any more? Anything else? No, I, I think I wish I wish I had a ton of things. To, okay. Yeah. I thank you for your time. Oh, thank, I thank you, you for having for, me. Well, it was great to visit Elian. This is a great story, and the story of Elian is great. Yeah, it's this nice is, to revisit that. I, this is my kind of writing that takes you to oh, something in journalism and politics, yeah. and you revisit it as an adult, and things have changed, like you said. Right. So I really appreciate this story, as I appreciate them all. Thank you very much. Will you come back I, for another week? Absolutely. To come back to a place where people tell me how great I am. You're so great. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> you're gonna, you can't get rid of me. All right. Thank you, sir. The Guilty Pleasures podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, and you, our listeners. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. 
Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We are on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild and at Guildy Pleasures on Twitter and Instagram. This is your producer, Jesse Koontz. Thank you for listening. Now, go write. <laughs>